RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 338, Hippocratic Oath. to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we stay true to our oath to peel back the many layers of Star Trek, episode by episode, to get to the heart of the story. Putting the Bashir and O'Brien bromance to the test, this week it's Hippocratic Oath, in which our heroes are trapped on a remote planet by Jem Hadar, who just need to pick the doctor's brain for a while. I'll have your prescription for trivia in just a moment, but until then, Norman, please let our listeners know where to reach us for consultation. House calls are currently unavailable. If you would like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323 322-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. So to fulfill that prescription for trivia, (laughs) so that it makes us feel all sorts of better, is the doctor in the house John Champion. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Trivia for today's episode, Hippocratic Oath. Well, it was written by the team of Nicholas Correa and Lisa Klink. Nicholas had the idea and made the original pitch about Jem Hadar, who were trying to break their addiction to Ketracel White. Now, uh, Lisa Klink, who had been a writing intern, had been working on a story idea that would have Bashir and O'Brien on opposite ends of what to do with an alien species and uh, a native species existing on the same planet. The two story ideas were merged by Rene Echeverria. Uh, Also, he was the one who added something for Worf. And then Lisa wrote up the teleplay. So that's just to set the stage. These ideas in various forms have been kicking around for a long time and uh, various people on the staff championing one version or another. And finally, it took Renee to say, hey, just put these together. That'll work. Now, everyone liked what Lisa wrote so much that the staff told her, hey, uh, they're looking for writers over at Star Trek Voyager in the production office right now, and she easily got in for a staff job there. And she stayed with that show for a while, even becoming the story editor on season four. Oh, and uh, Ron Moore, by the way, did a polish on this script, uh, but it was all very well accepted by Lisa. She thought that he did a great job. Well, so many kind of uh, cooks in the kitchen or too many Indians and not enough chiefs. Right. 
I don't think that it actually made the entire episode suffer for that. Sometimes when you see like a ton of credits, like executive writers, executive producers, and, and a cavalcade of credits in a movie, you're like, oh god, yeah, what this went is wrong? not going to go well. <laughs> right. But I don't think that I don't think that that is the case with this episode. Yeah, I don't think so either. And uh, just uh, again to say something about Lisa's talent, uh, you can go back and listen to a couple of episodes of the Trek Files uh, here on the Roddenberry Podcast Network, uh, where Lisa was the guest and. And she was just terrific, talking specifically about her time on Voyager and uh, wonderful backstage stories there. She's uh, also a real fan of Star Trek and of the medium. So uh, go back and listen to her chatting with Larry, the other Dr. Trek, <laughs> here on the network. Now, Hippocratic Oath was directed by René Aubergenois. So it's the third time out for René as director on DS9. And this one was not exactly easygoing. So we mentioned last week how The Visitor was actually shot later to accommodate Colomini's schedule for filming a movie. Well, Rene thought he was directing that episode, but when the order was switched at the last minute, here he was given the script for Hippocratic Oath. He had to do all of his prep very fast and uh, land himself in an episode with more action, more effects than he had bargained for. Uh, and it's interesting, if you look at Terry J. Urban's book, uh, Rene says that the first two episodes out as a new director, and particularly somebody coming from within the production already, they make it pretty easy. You know, they don't give you a really tough episode. Everybody's kind of got your back. They realize that you're the new guy directing. By the third time, he said that was really the tough one. So it was one of the most challenging directing jobs that he had. Now, a fun bit of trivia here. We usually like to point out ship names and how fun it is that the runabouts in particular on DS9 are named after rivers. So, Norman, a question for you. What's your runabout name? Could be a river that you grew up near or has significance to you. A river? Mm -hmm. Wow. See, I grew up in, in Ohio, so there weren't a ton of rivers there, but I am kind of – well, let's see. Maybe I ha, it would have to be a lake because I'm surrounded by the Great Lakes. Okay, or was surrounded by the Great Lakes, so it would be Lake Erie. Oh, okay. So the the USS Erie, I like it. Yeah, because already you have interesting connotations about that name. See, for me, you know, the the nearest really big significant river to me would be the Mississippi, uh, but kind of the the river that ran through town was the Cahaba. So it'd be the the USS Cahaba if we were going that way. What does Cahaba mean? Couldn't tell you. Uh, Indian name. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah. I'm sure that somebody in our audience would know. Yeah. It literally means runabout. Yeah. It means, yeah, this is the USS <laughs> runabout, runabout. Runabout. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in this episode, so it's the Rubicon uh, that's the featured runabout, uh, which we know got added in the episode Family Business when Cisco named it as the replacement for the Mekong. And we actually have a class name to go with it now, too, the Danube class, sticking with that river theme. So good thing there's a lot of rivers because, man, I mean, they, they just get down to the bottom of, like, the Los Angeles. Is that well, – well, it's a city. Uh, is it really a river? Well, it is, but it's kind of cement. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, just going – They could the literally, like, if they, if they wanted to shut down the station, they could take all the runabout Danube classes and turn it into their own Viking cruise lines. They could, yes. Oh, see, that would be my dream right there. That would be great. <laughs> Get on it, Quark. Get on it, Quark. Yes. Now, I like to point out locations in production whenever I can. And uh, in this one, 
There are no locations. They actually shot the whole thing on a soundstage. And it's interesting to read about the accommodations they made. They didn't have a full-size runabout uh, uh, set, so they just kind of filled in. You had the doorway, and then they, they covered it with trees and branches uh, to show the crash landing. And this was another challenge for Rene, who said he would have loved to have shot this on location, but that was not in the cards for him. So it was very tough to shoot these scenes where you had running around, you had different set pieces, but they all had to be on this rather small soundstage for the jungle set that we have here on this planet. Now let's talk about guest stars. Uh, Quark is doing a deal early on here with an alien played by Roderick Garr, and this is his first and only Trek appearance. We also have a handful of Jim Hadar on the planet where Bashir and O'Brien crash. Among those actors, you have Stephen Davies, uh, who we see as one of my favorite alien species, a Bolian in the DS9 pilot Emissary. We'll see Steven again in Voyager, looking considerably more like himself and not covered in so much gray or blue makeup. And there's also Jerry Roberts, uh, who we saw once before in his human guise in Star Trek VI as a bridge officer on the Excelsior. He'll be back in Voyager as well. Then there's Marshall Teague, who is also doing the DS9 to Voyager jump for his only two Trek appearances, but he's got a very healthy resume, including a recurring role on Babylon 5. Finally, the focus here really is on the Jim Hadar Goranagar, and uh, here we get to welcome back a Star Trek production favorite, Scott McDonald. Scott, we first saw in TNG as the Romulan Nevek in Face of the Enemy. You may remember him more, though, when he was Tosk in the DS9 episode Captive Pursuit from Season 1. The producers liked working with him and wanted him back for more. Specifically, it was René Aubergenois who requested him for this role. I would be remiss, John, if I didn't bring up one bit of trivia regarding Marshall Teague, and it's sure. not about Babylon 5. No, I'm, shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked. He played Talon in Babylon 5, <laughs> and I can get into that with the listeners if you want to pay him. But... <laughs> I would be remiss as a as a child of the '80s if I did not mention Roadhouse. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I, you know that that is uh, probably the top of his most recognized roles. Um, yeah, you know yeah. That, that, that it's it's hard to forget Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah, he he played the the late Patrick Swayze's nemesis, and sadly he had his throat torn out. Mm. But what a fight scene! A couple of friends on the return trip home, a downed ship, a remote jungle planet. What could possibly go wrong? Prologue. At Quark's Bar, it's the usual assemblage of aliens, ne'er-do-wells, and morally ambiguous bartenders. Worf, though, is having trouble making sense of it all. This is definitely not 10 forward. And there's a known smuggler, Regana Tosh, just hanging around like it isn't even a thing. Worf suspects he's up to something, probably with Quark. Even Kira tells Worf to settle down. Odo is on top of whatever goes down with Quark. Somewhere in the Gamma Quadrant, Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien are returning from a biosurvey trip when their runabout detects a magneton pulse coming from a planet, which could be indication of a damaged ship. The closer they get... A plasma field knocks out their instruments, and they crash land. 
Emerging from the runabout, Bashir and O'Brien are greeted by a team of Jem'Hadar. Act 1. Back on the station, Sisko is giving Worf a talking to. He really should not concern himself with the possible smuggling operation going on at Quark's. Odo has things under control, and furthermore, it's not his job. This isn't the Enterprise. Are we cool? Cool. Bashir and O'Brien are, meanwhile, trying to figure out the predicament they've gotten into. Here they sit in a makeshift cell, outside but behind a force field. O'Brien notes that the Jim Hadar seem a little jumpy. Bashir suspects that they need a doctor. And if that's the case, O'Brien says don't help them. It could be the only way to get themselves out of there. One of the Jim Hadar then shows up to take Bashir away. Act 2. Goranagar is the Jem'Hadar in charge. He takes Bashir to a very rudimentary lab out in the open. He needs Bashir's skills as a doctor to help his men. You see, they're all addicted to Ketracel White, the enzyme that they need to live, programmed by the founders as part of their genetic makeup. Without the White, they'll die. But Goranagar is different. He crash-landed on this same planet three years ago, and somehow he managed to survive without the Ketracel White. Now he wants the men that he brought here to be free of their addiction and free of the founders. It's not working, though. His men are suffering, and they haven't kicked the addiction like Aranagar did. It's up to Bashir to find a cure before the limited supply of Ketracel White runs out. And if he doesn't, those soldiers will turn on him and Goranagar. They all lose. Back in their confinement, Bashir and O'Brien make it look like they're working on something medical, though O'Brien has come up with something they can use as a weapon to make an escape. When a couple of Jim Hadar approach to see how it's going, they play it cool until one accidentally discharges the weapon, seriously injuring one of the other soldiers. O'Brien is quickly, forcefully slammed onto a table with a Jem'Hadar's hand around his throat, even while Garanagar commands that he be released. Act 3. Garanagar might have saved O'Brien, but now that wounded soldier is asking to be put out of his misery. That will have to wait, too. He's ordered to go back to their damaged ship, and even though normally he would have been euthanized, the goal here is to be free of the Founders, free of the Vorta, free of their rules. Bashir is still at work trying to determine why Garanagar is different from the others, having survived this long without Ketracel White. As the doctor examines him, Jem'Hadar starts to get philosophical about not wanting to follow the orders of the Founders passed to them through the Vorta. He doesn't believe anymore that this is the only thing available to him in this life. Well, Dr. Bashir can't wait to tell his friend O'Brien about this. A Jem'Hadar developing sympathy, a moral code. O'Brien doesn't buy it, though. He sees it as a trick to get Bashir to work harder. The divide is clear. Bashir sees an opportunity to help more Jem'Hadar become free. O'Brien sees the danger in helping their enemy, potentially creating a bigger enemy for the Federation. Ultimately, Bashir pulls rank and orders O'Brien to help by pulling a scanner from the runabout. When O'Brien goes to the runabout, under guard by a Jem'Hadar, he takes the opportunity to create a diversion and beam himself somewhere else in the jungle. Act 4. 
Bashir isn't making any progress in determining why Garanagar is different from the others. It could just be a random genetic variance and nothing to do with the planet. This conversation is interrupted with the news that O'Brien has escaped, and Garanagar gives the order to bring him back alive. The Jem'Hadar soldier questions the order, though, accusing Garanagar of going soft. It's an indication that he has lost control of his men. O'Brien does his best playing hard to catch, using his tricorder as a diversion. He even manages to knock out one of the Jem'Hadar and steal his weapon. Arriving back at the site where Bashir is still working, he tells the doctor that now is the time to escape. They just need to go, quickly, back to the runabout. Bashir, who's been trying his hardest to help cure these Jem'Hadar, says no, he's not going. Act 5, what? Or something like that. Bashir is determined to find a cure to stay behind and help these Jem'Hadar. O'Brien just says they'll kill him anyway, even if he's successful. But the doctor doesn't care, and O'Brien says he's going, and Bashir is coming with him. Then he aims a Jem'Hadar weapon at the equipment Bashir's been working on this whole time and vaporizes it. So, I guess this means we're going. Not without a fight, though. Guranagar materializes and overpowers O'Brien. Now with both of them at gunpoint, they head out into the jungle. Approaching the runabout, one of the other Jem'Hadar sees that Guranagar has captured the prisoners and prepares to kill them. Guranagar raises his weapon first, though, killing the other Jem'Hadar and telling Bashir and O'Brien to leave. He'll stay behind and face his soldiers. He is their commander, and they are his responsibility after all. Safely aboard their runabout and heading home, Bashir and O'Brien unpack what just happened. O'Brien disobeyed an order. He destroyed the doctor's work, and he condemned those Jem'Hadar to death. So, Bashir could bring him up on charges, but he says that's not really his style. O'Brien did what he felt he had to do, all to save the doctor's life. This will take some time to get over. Wait, uh, what about that other place? Oh, uh, the, the big metal thing in space. Right, Deep Space Nine. Things were happening there, too. Worf kept sticking his ridged forehead into the matter of Cork, meeting with that smuggler of Talonian crystals, bothering Odo about it, and finally spying on Cork late at night. The smuggler showed up, they have a meeting, and Wark just can't contain himself that Odo isn't doing anything about it. So late one other night, Worf takes things into his own hands, trying to bust the transaction between Quark and Raganatosh. It was a setup, though, and Odo hid himself as the bag of latinum Quark was using to pay for the illegal crystals. So, way to go, Worf. You just blew it. The whole investigation Odo and Quark were using to get to the heart of a much bigger smuggling operation. Cisco's like, yeah, things are different here. Don't do it again, okay? The end. Much like any doctor, John Champion's technical proficiency and scalpel-like assertion <laughs> of this <laughs> recap was extraordinary and you sanitary. You flatter me, sir. You flatter me. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm glad to see that mugshot is still a term in the 24th century. I like that. I, I, it's, it is a weird thing, but... It just kind of grounds us in our own 21st century reality. 
It does. It, it's one of those funny things, though. It's like a, a, of the things that Star Trek chooses uh, to keep the same and things to make different. You know, uh, on TOS, uh, the, there was some reference in a script to a tape. And it was Gene Roddenberry who said, no, 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 there's no tape in the 23rd century. It's something else. It's another thing. Just come up with another thing. Uh, And then in this, you know, in uh, TNG and DS9, you have essentially like laptop computers, although they're bigger than the ones that we use now. And they have pads, although they come in a variety of shapes. But like mugshot, it's just something like mug being slang for somebody's face. It's a very, uh, very, it's a dated term now, but we still use it. It's kind of like I, I saw this meme the other day uh, somewhere online, and it, it said, you know, the year is 2466, and we have flying cars and jetpacks and this and that and the other, but the icon for save is still a floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just it's, it's one of those things. Huh. It's just hard to change. It's kind of like using paper still or even like using a stylus on a pad or anything oh. like that. You know? Yeah. Boy, that seems really anachronistic, right? right. And mugshot <laughs> is such police vernacular. So I think they try and just kind of like color wharf's attitude like mugshot. I'm a cop. Yeah. But I'm not supposed to be a cop right now (laughs) right good point hey uh we have to talk about that opening dialogue between o'brien and bashir Mm -hmm. Uh, okay so so yes uh o'brien should not be so dense as to have a workshop in his bedroom um that that should be a given but look ds9 is literally just brimming with open space see this is where the whole five thousand photon torpedoes comes into play because you know they got to make do with the space they got so they got to stick the 5,000 torpedoes in somewhere okay so somebody came in knocked on the door like uh chief um we're gonna have to take a closet from you uh because we've got all these quantum torpedoes i'm sorry look everybody has to do it everybody (laughs) so cleaning out your game room it's like take your darts you know take uh your uh, sand peas and your ale <laughs> and all that stuff and stick it in your quarters because we've got torpedoes but, to but, house. But but cork stays. Cork stays exactly as is. The yamak sauce, everything, that stays. Oh, of course. It's quarks. Okay. Yeah. You know, this it's is a place special, of commerce. Yeah, special dispensation. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but, man, that line uh, that he wishes Keiko could be more like a man – Hint, hint, Bashir. And with that, a million more pages of fan fiction were launched, I feel certain. It's too bad that we didn't see or we haven't seen Bashir and O'Brien go on some type of just men's retreat. They need that. They do. Yeah. They really do. They don't need Jem Hadar to come out and kidnap them and threaten them at Blaster Point or under pain of death. They just need to go out and hike like like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy did in Five. They just need to have right. marshmallows and bourbon <laughs> and secret yes. recipes with Sing bourbon. Sing songs while they're at yeah, it. With, yeah. you know, row, row, row your boat. That is a great idea. It, it is so infrequent on Star Trek that uh, something leisurely goes well. That, um, that, that campfire scene, generally speaking went very well until it didn't mm-hmm. um but yeah you can't even go to risa without getting into uh, shenanigans there so this is why yeah. starfleet officers are always stressed they never have any real downtime oh it's rough <laughs> so i thought it was strange when 
Bashir saw Garana Gar for the first time without his Ketracel white tube. And he says mm-hmm. that he didn't understand that why that happened and why he wasn't under the effect. So Bashir is a very smart guy. He's very observant. He is sure. Starfleet Medical's salutatorian for his class, if it weren't for that one mistake. Yeah. And yet yeah. he doesn't come to the scientific conclusion that there's a possible mutation involved with this particular Jem'Hadar being able to ignore the effects in his genetic makeup of Ketracel White. Yeah. It just seemed very, you know, it seemed that Benedict Cumberbatch probably could have gotten to that conclusion quicker, but he was too busy <laughs> playing con somewhere else. So, yes, I just thought Good that point. was a little strange. Good point. Yeah. Also, and contrary to what I just said, mm-hmm. when the Jem Hadar soldier choke slammed Bashir a la WWE style, when mm-hmm. which was a great stunt, it, it was, was well a great done. stunt. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure Colmini like threw himself into it, and maybe he did yeah. hurt himself. But yeah. all of a sudden, and, and very much like Chris Sarandon's, like um, Prince Humperdinck did in, in The Princess Bride, he goes, mm-hmm. when he picked up that little tube of wood, he goes, hmm, I okay, I bet my life on it. Bashir just yeah. looks at his trachea and says, you have a bruised trachea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because right. Because he's Bashir that can't identify why this guy isn't under the influence of Ketracel White, but on site, without a tricorder, he can tell that Bashir's trachea is bruised and and if i'm not mistaken it, it the blocking in that scene he's like a little bit behind or to the side of him he's not even looking at him dead on uh again you wouldn't be able to tell but uh, correct me if i'm wrong he even follows it up by saying like oh he'll be fine or <laughs> something like it's like what I, you're the worst doctor in this moment it you're terrible this is where he he identified the pre-ganglionic fiber for a post-ganglionic nerve Yes. It was just, it was that conundrum. He literally was having his Kobayashi Maru medical moment right there. Right there. Oh, for everybody to see. How embarrassing in front of the Jem Hadar. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a brief mention to events of The Way of the Warrior. We had a little briefing scene about what was happening with the Klingons um, and how Kauron simply declared victory and returned home. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because it's kind of a throwaway moment in this episode. But I like seeing this minor thread of consistency to the storyline. That That's cool to see in an episode where otherwise has nothing to do with it. And it's important here to note yet another example of Klingons just using words to, to uh, as they please mm-hmm. um, in, in some sort of weird Orwellian way almost. So last uh, last time, not last week, but two weeks ago, you and I had quite a discussion about their use of the word honor and how they just slap the word on it, but the meaning is gone, and it becomes this way to manipulate almost. This time it's victory. And Worf is the one who calls it out. He's like, yeah, even if they lost, he'll just go back and say they're victorious. And then I picture all these other Klingons just uh, as bad as it might be to say, oh, yeah, total victory. That that was a victory. What do you mean it wasn't a victory? We called it a victory. Therefore, it's a victory. That was literally the the scene in The Untouchables where Al Capone has the baseball bat and the one guy goes, yeah, enthusiasm, enthusiasm. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> yes. what are you talking about? Bang. You know, it's like you're right. Yeah. It, the, the Klingons are their own best self-marketers. Yeah. Like once they actually get an idea in their heads and they actually, you know, set it in motion, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It's just that is what it is. If Galron says it is, then it must be so. Then it is. 
And there's total buy-in, which is so strange and interesting. Or suffer, suffer the fate of the bug eyes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love him. Um, oh, there was a great little exchange of dialogue when uh, Bashir and O'Brien know that they're being listened to by the Jem'Hadar who have them captured. And uh, uh, O'Brien's trying to hide the weapon that he's working on. And O'Brien, I'm sorry, Bashir says, keep this up and you'll make a fine officer one day. And O'Brien says, well, well, that means a lot coming from you, sir. I love Bashir's response. I know. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Just so good. So many layers to that of them obviously playing in code to each other Mm -hmm. and trying to distract from what's actually going on. Uh, And also the fact that they are friends working together, but also taking these little shots in their dialogue. It's delightful. I love it when a scene plays out like that in such a short, short time. Well, one thing I thought that was really, really neat, and it was a I don't know if it was a conscious decision by Avery Brooks or if it was a writing nod or a note, but -hmm. the scene where he's talking to Worf and he has his baseball in his hand, he's starting to massage his baseball and he dismisses Odo and Odo gives him a security briefing, but he does something very deliberate and they actually kind of, not, they don't literally pause the camera, but they really focus on what Cisco is saying and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And if you really pay attention to his hand, he actually grips the baseball and what's called a split fingered fastball grip. And that's known in the baseball vernacular as kind of like the change-up grip, where most batters, if they, know where if they know the pitcher that they're facing, they know how to read a pitcher's fastball, and they can clock it and probably get like a, you know, either a home run or at least an infield triple. But the change-up in and of itself, I think, is, is part and parcel to Cisco's mentality of the time. He knows he can pitch war fastballs. He's like, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. But it's showing Cisco's kind of like his guile, his canniness of just letting Worf just on the leash long enough to see if he either snaps to and actually embraces his role as, what is it, Starfleet liaison? Uh, uh, he's the, the uh, security operations. Or, yeah. yeah. So, he's, uh, so he yeah. does that, but it's not, his job isn't security. Yeah. So he wants Worf to figure that out and find that for himself. But yes. that's what happens with a changeup. It's that you know it's coming at you, but sooner or later it's going to befuddle you, and you're going to be like, "What just happened?" Like, "Oh, I really need to pay attention to what's going yeah. on." Yeah, yeah. Nice. That that is a very clever thing. And now I'm I'm left with the same question, which is, was that a conscious thing? Um, was it scripted? Was it, or was it just Avery Brooks? Even by accident, mm-hmm. it's like a happy accident that you have this change, and that that is so cool. Um, oh, hey, here's a, uh, a Star Trek thing that uh, concerns me uh, many times. Uh, how about shooting through somebody who is in mid-transport, um, as the Jim Hadar does to Chief O'Brien when uh, the chief makes that quick escape? It, it leaves a nice little burn mark on the wall behind him. But I just keep thinking that the chief rematerializes somewhere and uh, has a lot of uh, pain in his liver or, or other internal organs. Yeah, it's, it's a weird timing thing because in the act of transporting, are they still material and immaterial? Is it like Schrodinger's transporter? Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, good question. Because unless you actually yeah. materialize, you're free from harm. However, if your pattern buffer is being you know, in stasis at that time, does that mean that that energy discharge becomes part of your pattern? Ooh, 
Oh, that is concerning. Right in, folks. You know you want to. <laughs> I can hear your Vulcan ear tips bristling with questions. I mean, look, I always figured that in the Wrath of Khan, when Kirk is having a conversation with Savick as they're beaming, mm-hmm. there's something, quote-unquote, material about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I remember on TOS, uh, and it might have been... I can't remember if it was in the making of Star Trek, so whether or not it's quote-unquote real uh, as an explanation or if it was something that they came up with later, like in Franz Joseph's technical manual. But there was sort of this excuse that, like, when they're in the process of transporting, they, they kind of go into stasis. Mm-hmm. They're sort of frozen. Of course, this was a nod to the effect. For the special effect, you had to freeze frame the actor and then get them out of there. So that that's how that effect worked. But then later on, you fast forward up to the late 70s, early 80s, suddenly you've got a much more sophisticated special effects. So you can have people moving around. And if you can have people moving around, you can have them talking too. So, you know, the interesting yeah. thing about transporters, and I don't want, I want to like belabor this point too long, but sure. I yeah. think that when you're transporting, and it's just this convention of TV, you're seeing transporting from one area to switch scenes to another area to where the transporter effect will you know, we'll, we'll place that person in the next scene or mm-hmm. in that next uh, environment. But what I actually do think is going on with transporters is that it's happening simultaneously, hence the Schrodinger's joke, because oh, yeah, you know, yeah, in the yeah. box, okay. the cat is both dead and alive until you see the quantum fixation of their, of their actual molecules. Right. But when the transporter beam goes off, it's materializing somewhere else in the exact same place. Now, that being said, I'm surprised that the chief, I know he had to take a risk, but I'm surprised that, you know, he risked being beamed into a tree or a, or a lake yeah. or, or into a rock because that, that yeah. does happen. You know, you've seen transporter accidents of, of, of varying degrees when things aren't locked in and the, uh, the environment is a, a safe zone for transporting. They're not good. They're not good. Mm-hmm. Just ask Commander Sonak's family. Yeah. Mm, too soon. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> too soon. To 1978 too soon. <laughs> So one of the things that also I really enjoyed seeing was was uh, Alexander Sadig Sadig Elfadil, his response to the Jem'Hadar saying that I want to leave the Dominion. He didn't think that that was possible. Not necessarily him uh, Garanagar leaving the Ketracel White influence, but leaving the Dominion itself because, to Bashir's knowledge. The Dominion has a stranglehold on these Jem'Hadar soldiers. They gen- genetically engineer them. They are loyal to a fault. But that's not true. And I thought that was super cool that Bashir was like, oh, wait, what? what? Wait, mm-hmm. what's going on here? It's like, you're not loyal to the Dominion? He goes, no. And they hate the Vorta. Hate the Vorta. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a, obviously, it's a, it's a relationship that, that benefits the Jem'Hadar because they give them the drug. But... What I love about the whole aspect of the Ketracel White goes all the way back to the very first episode of TNG where Q, he transforms into that one soldier. He's like, and, and then you control your armies by using drugs. Mm-hmm. And then he snorts kind of like the little cocaine apparatus that's on yep. his neck area. Yeah. And I think that comes like very, very pointedly here in play when it comes to the Jem'Hadar. And I like that they, it's like, you know what? No, we're sentient beings. We don't want that. We, we, yeah. We're not born for that. We're not born to do this. We're not slaves. I, I want you to hang on to that thought uh, because I, I'm glad you planted it here. And I want to come back to that in the next segment as well because it might very well tie into 
another thought or a, a similar thought that I had on exactly that. So good call. Hey, uh, at the end of this episode, did you catch Cisco uh, when he's explaining the the lack of rules to Worf or the different rules to Worf? It looks like he's doing some serious work on one of those uh, like executive desk toys. It's like I have this thing and it's like a pendulum and it goes back and forth and I'm just going to tighten the sprues on it. Uh, it's actually part of that very fancy clock he was building in uh, Dramatis Personae in season one. thought that was a nice little throwback to that. Very cool when you have, again, a little thread of consistency like that. And then Cisco says to Worf, let's just say DS9 has more shades of gray. And there it is, Norman. There it is. Just DS9 rubbing it in your face by calling back the worst episode of TNG. I'm going to end this whole segment on a positive note, Sean. And all I got to say <laughs> is, why aren't there more Newton's cradles on officers' desks in the 23rd, what is this, 23rd century? 20, 24th. 24th century, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You, you would think they're timeless. I thought yeah. so. I mean, it's just physics. And, you know, it's yeah. not like it's any technology that is beholding to any century. It would have been neat if, like, if, if Cisco was trying to fix his Newton's cradle. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that, actually. He, he, he pulls one of the balls out, lets it go, but then two bounce on the other end. Like, this, that, there's something wrong. <laughs> I'm working on some new songs for this episode. You're a gem had art habit to break. No? Okay. How about I want a new drug? One that won't make me sick. One that won't make me crash my ship. Or make me kill Bashir too quick. We'll talk more about Hippocratic Oath in just a moment. But first, a word from us to you about Patreon. You can support Mission Log directly at patreon.com slash mission log. Norman, I noticed that you've been having some fantastic conversations with our listeners over at Patreon. I have. The Patreon listeners and the listeners that are watching this right now, who I expect that they'll chime in once they see this content, they've been very engaging with what we've been doing. And I think that's fantastic, not only in a content sense, but also in a technical sense. And I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the feedback that we're both getting from all of the supporters on Patreon. That just means that they are enjoying our content. They're enjoying kind of like these behind the scenes, our warts and all, our stutters <laughs> and our missteps and our miscues. That's the reality of recording live. Yep. Yep. And uh, it's really exciting to go in there and uh, share our raw, unedited, behind-the-scenes uh, recording sessions with everybody on video so you get to see what we look like and uh, kind of experience the recording as we do it. Uh, so you can see all of that at patreon.com slash mission log. There's more stuff, too. Uh, there are other little perks and benefits to signing up at Patreon, but we certainly do appreciate the support, and that support does go directly to creating more mission log and mission log live. So again, that address is patreon.com slash mission log and thank you all for your support so john i found it very interesting for our discussion to really pay attention to the very specific choice of this episode called hippocratic oath you just don't pull that title hippocratic oath just from thin air and this is really where the rubber meets the road for this particular episode because sure there's a, a very strong a line there's a very weak b line in my opinion and we'll talk about that later on but I want to get to the strict definition for our listeners so that they can 
stay informed of what Hippocratic Oath really means. I'm sure that everyone has a cursory understanding of that, but the Hippocratic Oath in general terms is a creed taken by physicians to quote unquote, do no harm or by inaction, allow harm to come to others if prevention is possible and there's an alternative that can be applied. Now, in breaking that down, there are several specific instances or I guess several different ways that you can apply the Hippocratic Oath as it was written by Hippocrates mm -hmm. when this was created. Now, there are two versions. There's the ancient version. There's more of a modern medical version. But the very first specific citing of the Hippocratic Oath that I'd like to talk about is this, and it is, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Oh, interesting. Now, this okay. probably plays the very first specific significant application of the Hippocratic Oath as it applies to Dr. Bashir, because Dr. Bashir is asked specifically by Garanagar to create some type of antidote or figure out some type of drug that will free them from the Ketracel White addiction. Mm -hmm. Which would be, well, that would be a positive thing if he comes up with a, a drug or something to help them kick this habit and allow them to live their, uh, their fully realized lives uh, free of this mm -hmm. addiction, free of this, essentially the slavery uh, that they have to the Dominion. So that certainly makes sense in a very clear-cut medical purpose uh, that, that Dr. Bashir has there. Now, as the Hippocratic Oath in terms of doing no harm applies to Bashir's attitude towards what Chief O'Brien may feel about this entire endeavor and why Julian pulled rank and, and ordered him to do and assist finding a cure for the Jem'Hadar, Dr. Bashir is, for us, the embodiment of idealism. Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. O'Brien is the epitome of practicality. So you have these two opposing philosophical forces at play here, naivete, if you will, or idealism with Dr. Bashir, and pragmatism with Chief O'Brien. And when those two opposing forces are introduced, especially when it comes to these two friends whose friendship is obviously burgeoning and blossoming and, and uh, developing over time, and, and let's make this a very specific point, that Dr. Bashir is the highest ranking officer mm -hmm. between the two being that chief isn't even an officer. He's a non-com. He's a not officer that puts their philosophies in direct opposition of each other. Now, in terms of working together, what does that do? What does that add to their dynamic? Does that put their friendship aside and their responsibilities to the forefront? Well, so clearly they did put their friendships aside at some point. They they had to argue this out logically. They had to argue this out again with, uh, as you pointed out, Bashir pulling rank. Let me ask you something, though, as far as this oath goes, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, um, one of the lines in there is that uh, you will not, through inaction, allow harm to come to someone is that not O'Brien's position, though? Uh, if O'Brien does not take action to escape and to drag his friend uh, maybe unwillingly with him, is he then allowing harm? In his mind, we, we, we don't have proof of that, although we can say that it's a likely scenario. Um, 
is he then allowing harm through his inaction to come to Bashir? That's where I think like the levels of the Hippocratic Oath can be interpreted mm-hmm. in a variety of different ways because Bashir is operating from his Starfleet medical training and the medical oath mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to the Hippocratic Oath. His first and foremost responsibility and duty as a doctor, and I, I love how he says that specifically at the very beginning where the Jem'Hadar are trying to identify not only their station and their rank, but their, I guess, their their office as well. And Bashir is the office of doctor. And he says that. He goes, I'm a doctor, not just a science officer, not just science or medical. He goes, I'm a doctor. Yeah. And he says that with a certain level of arrogance at the time, but also a certain level of clarity because he wants to make sure that people know that this is what he does. And as soon as he does that, Garanagar says, okay, um, we're not going to do anything to any of these guys. We're not going to use O'Brien as a tactical target for training, and this one's coming with me. In terms of Bashir versus O'Brien, sure, O'Brien has a very specific need as a soldier to save his fellow soldiers from harm. That's his training as a non-com specifically because usually when you see like the the sergeants or some of the, the lower ranking soldiers, not officers in whatever, whatever medium you want to see, like, you know, Band of Brothers or Saving Private Ryan, these are the guys that feel like I'm responsible for bringing everybody home back alive. Yeah. And it's my responsibility to make sure that whatever choice you make if it puts you in harm's way, I will remove you from that harm, even if you are trying to do the right thing, because that's my job. My job is to bring you home to your family, to your children, and for you to continue your normal life as opposed to you doing the right thing by your standings and putting yourself in harm's way. So would you or could you say that Bashir is in some way ignoring his duty to O'Brien? Because uh, here, here's the thing, uh, uh, Bashir is the ranking officer, and even though O'Brien is a non-com, uh, as we established, Bashir outranks, quote-unquote, O'Brien, so he can give him an order um, as a non-commission. We understand that Bashir has a sympathy to the Jem'Hadar in the condition that they're in, right? The, he has a sympathy to the situation, I should say. But if you really want to split hairs here, is he by not protecting the well-being of his own crew, which could mean removing him from harm, is he shirking his duties? Or do you, do you then get to go back and say, okay, well, Bashir didn't see or think that there was a clear and present danger to both of them. Even if he's wrong, this is what he thought at the time. Well, I think that what's coming into play here and, and much to to Garrick's delight, and he loves pointing out and loves kind of poking fun at Bashir about this, is Bashir is an idealist. Mm-hmm. You know, first and foremost, you know, he came to Deep Space Nine with dreams of grandeur, w- with healing the sick and healing the <laughs> suffering and, and bringing, like, all of these great, you know, his talent and all of these great you know, medical applications to, you know, to, to do the right thing. And in this case, he is thinking about doing the right thing. But what Bashir doesn't put at the forefront is that he is the chief medical officer of a Federation station. Right. He has responsibilities to to his command staff under Cisco. So if if Bashir doesn't return, all of the work that he's done and all of the success and and all of the I guess all of the momentum that he's built 
throughout the course of these last three and a half years or four years will be lost if he doesn't return. Yeah. So where does that leave Deep Space Nine? So I think that the chief sees that because the chief's like, look, you're not just a doctor. You're not just, you know, you're not doctors without borders here. You know, you're not here just to serve the public good, or in this case, the public good of this particular planet, these handful of Jem'Hadar. You are the chief medical officer of a Federation-run space station. Your responsibilities are far greater to the people that you are in charge of there than the handful of people that you see here. But doctors don't see it that way. Doctors like, this is a life. They need help. Yeah. It's my responsibility based on my oath to help them. So that's why I find this story so fascinating because the chief is very strong and resolute in his belief in his version of the oath. Mm-hmm. And so is Bashir's. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what, what you're saying is great. It's almost a very Spock-like argument of, you know, putting this logical cap on how far your sympathies can extend. You know, uh, understanding and acknowledging that that is what Bashir's strengths are. This is what his passion is. This is what his job is. He's dedicated his life to all of this. But if that sort of runs out of control, then there are all these other responsibilities that get lost along the way. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a very interesting way of, uh, of looking at this. So as it applies to the overall narrative, and this is kind of like what we're getting at, this is kind of like the crux of, of our discussion. What I want to focus on is that the, the Hippocratic Oath specifically says that I must tread with care in matters of life and death. If it is given to me to save a life, all thanks. But it may also be within my power to take a life. This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. Above all, I must not play at God. That in and of itself, that particular specific passage from the ancient Hippocratic Oath is where we see Bashir and O'Brien at odds. And even in some way, Garan Agar, because I want to specifically state this, I must tread with care in matters of life and death. If it is given to me to save a life, all thanks. But it may also be within my power to take a life in order to preserve a life. In effect, that's what Bashir and O'Brien are totally at odds with. Bashir wants to protect life for the sake of protecting life. O'Brien says, I may take a life in order to protect a life. Yeah. So one of the most powerful scenes, I think, in this episode, and it really puts our two friends or our two developing or evolving friends at odds, is the scene when Bashir and O'Brien are in their prison cell. Bashir is debating about how to either help Granagar versus O'Brien's skepticism regarding Bashir's plan and how it may, or in O'Brien's estimation, will backfire, is really exploring the heart of this episode through the filter of two Starfleet officers, one who is professionally obligated and ethically obligated to help others in need, regardless of race or enemy standing. The other is an experienced and savvy battle-hardened soldier who believes in returning to his home and family, oath notwithstanding. So I'm going to read a piece of the dialogue here, this particular scene, It will help inform the decision-making process of not just the listeners, but ourselves. So Bashir says, in regards to the Jem'Hadar, they're not animals. They are people being used as slaves. And this is their one chance at freedom. And O'Brien says, and what are they going to do with that freedom? Stop being so naive, Julian. Look at them for what they are. They're killers. That's all they know how to do. That's all they want to do. And Bashir responds, 
but they have the potential to be so much more. Garanagar has shown them that. They just need our help. Now, maybe this is why O'Brien and Bashir worked so well together, because with Julian as the doctor, he can be the true empathetic personality because of his training, and the chief can be the true pragmatic personality because his past experience in the Cardassian War. They need to balance each other out so that their strengths and weaknesses give them the opportunity to see things as they really are, as opposed to how they want them to be. This is so interesting to me. I I think that is a great chunk of dialogue. And it's funny, I'd written down the exact same chunk of dialogue that you did. To me, Bashir, in that moment, that is so Star Trek. And yeah, it's idealistic, absolutely. But but he has to be. And and we have to be. I would think that this is, you know, telling the audience that, that this is who we are when we are at our best. It actually brought me back to our conversation in The Way of the Warrior because we were talking about, you know, is this sort of Klingon drive to, to fight, to conquer, to kill? Is this something that's just there because we had gone through, you know, 80-plus years of Star Trek history of they were the enemies, but then we figured out a way to make peace. And yeah, they're not members of the Federation just yet, but we can work alongside Klingons. And there are some rogue Klingons that don't play along nicely, but you also have a guy like Worf, who's a shining example of somebody who comes from a species that we think of as being enemies, but then they're not. And this was important to Gene Roddenberry to say, nobody's beyond redemption. We can learn to work with and understand our enemies. And when you do that, they're not our enemies anymore. We got a piece of email right after our episode on The Way of the Warrior aired. This is one of those times where you actually read a little viewer mail uh, in the show. And this is from uh, a listener named Melissa. And this is regarding Klingon. She says, Dear John and Norman, I'll, I'll butter you up first. <laughs> she says, Dear John and Norman, I've been listening to Mission Log uh, since late August, early September 2019. Pretty sure after STLV 2019. Cheers. You guys are great. I could go on for a while. But now let's talk Klingons. And I've edited just a little bit here. I think everyone has a little Klingon in them. Well, you're probably not wrong there. The episode, The Way of the Warrior, uh, in the episode, The Way of the Warrior, you mentioned that Worf says winning the war is the highest honor. While I just want to point out that in TOS Season 1, Episode 27, Errand of Mercy, Captain Kirk tries to save the Organians. He tells them that Klingons live in a military dictatorship and that war is their way of life. They live to conquer. It's a part of who they are and always will be. So maybe Worf is a new age of Klingon. With his honor, he tries to keep and uphold uh, in the most honorable way he can. But let's just remember we should never turn our backs to a Klingon. That's all I have for now. Thanks for doing what you do. Live long and prosper. Well, live long and prosper back to you, Melissa. Uh, but I, I do have to say this, and here's where I, I take exception with that idea, because I'm siding here with Bashir's idealism which is to say that even that species, even that group, of the, the, the Klingons that we said from the beginning of TOS, they're the enemies, they are our enemies, and every time they show up, we know it's going to end in a battle of some sort. They weren't and they aren't beyond redemption, and that was an important turning point for Star Trek to say, no, 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 
We can't just keep making the Klingons the same thing over and over again. And we've gotten more out of that in DS9 with the complexity that we've given to the Cardassians. And now, guess what? We've given a complexity to the Jem'Hadar to say not everybody you encounter is just one thing. There are layers there. There's understanding that you can make. Even if you think that that other thing or that other person is an enemy, you can actually stop to try to understand and realize that there are motivations deep down that you may not be aware of. I would also point out, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, Norman, that in Errand of Mercy, part of that whole point with Kirk saying that to the Organians was because the Organians mm-hmm. could then, you know, completely remove from both the Federation and the Klingons say, yeah, you're both acting this way. <laughs> you're both, mm-hmm. quote unquote, warriors, and you're both right. here itching for a fight. So we're going to stay out of it because we're better Kirk than was, that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Kirk was, I mean, this is what was referenced here, you know, what what Melissa referenced here about how Kirk colored the Klingons was to a race that never met the Klingons. And this was Kirk's, his opinion, yeah. you know, his, his understanding of the Klingons. And even he said, he's like, I'm a diplomat, not a soldier. Yeah. I'm, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. You know, and yeah. uh, it goes all the way. I mean, that, that, that his attitude towards the Klingons obviously extends all the way to Star Trek. Six. Yeah. I mean, he, he has a very specific, definite opinion of the Klingons. They're warriors. They are killers. They are dominators. This is it. That's all they do. That's all they right. are. And, and I think that in a way, uh, not focusing on where we are at with the Cardassians and the Dominion and the Jem'Hadar, I think takes away from the development of those races throughout the last three seasons because we're focusing on the Klingons now. And showing the Jem'Hadar in this, set, in this setting specifically shows, like, you're right, there's a certain sense of misunderstanding that we have about them. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it, and, it's and the that, most that... Star Trek thing you can do in, in an episode or in a series or in a long arc like this, which is to say, you know, that they're not just mindless robot killing machines, that there is actually something there. And it behooves us to stop for a minute and try to figure out what exactly is the fight that, that we're having. Well, let's swap this out with Arena, mm-hmm. and let's take the characters. Let's take Kirk and supplant him or replace him with Bashir and O'Brien, and let's take the Gorn and replace him with the Jem'Hadar. Oh. How is that any different? Yeah, yeah. you know, you're right. because Kirk obviously says, you know, you're you're my enemy, and I must kill you, and the Gorn's like, you're my enemy, and I must kill you. But they have no absolute understanding of why they're doing it, aside from the fact that yeah. each one believes that they're encroaching on each other's space, and therefore this must happen. Yeah, but that understanding that. I hate to use this as a pun, but that errand of mercy nicely done gives Kirk that moment of pause and saying, you know what? There's something else at play here. Yeah. And in recognizing that evolves Kirk's understanding and shows the, I believe it was the Metron. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The application of humanity's ability to become better than what they are and what they are being judged for. So very much like, and, would you entertain the notion that, in this case, Bashir is more of the Roddenberry ideal of Star Trek and that O'Brien is more of the current understanding uh, or current way that humanity sees themselves in Deep Space Nine in kind of like this dystopian type of Star I, Trek? I think it is, but I, I think we're also going to land in a place where I say 
they're both not wrong. You know, that that's the interesting challenge with this episode. But before we get to our wrap up, anything else you want to hit on our, our discussion here of uh, Hippocratic Oath? I have a couple of wordplay things here that are coming. Lay it up. on me. I'm not going to spoil. I'm not going to spoil too much. I'm going to lay it on you, but I'm going to lay it down. And I'm going to parse this out so that you can get the full meaning of my wordplay. Okay. When the, the Hippocratic Oath, when it comes to Worf, I kind of see it as more of a hypocritical whoa whoa (laughs) do explain listeners you're going to want to rewind (laughs) that one so the hippocratic oath one of its actual tenets says i will not be ashamed to say quote i know not unquote nor will i fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery now i find that extensively applied to wharf because wharf is the new Starfleet liaison officer for Deep Space Nine. And we've seen that and how, how Cisco manages his expectations of Worf. But he can't help himself. He just can't help sticking his, as you mm-hmm. said, ridged forehead into Odo's business because he is uncomfortable still with his role and why he's in Deep Space Nine. He is ashamed to say, I know not. He is ashamed to fail in colleagues' help. He is ashamed to say that I need assistance. He is ashamed to say that, you know what? I really don't know what I'm doing. That is not in the Klingon vernacular. I don't know or I will fail. However, what Cisco does, and he kind of Miyagi's him in a way, he kind of plants that seed of like, you know what? There are these gray areas that you just have to get used to. And it'll, be, it'll come in time. Cisco doesn't browbeat him or like demote him or, or dress him down. He's just like, you know what? You're okay. You're doing okay. Just chill out. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nicely said. There's one other thing that I want to touch on here before we uh, wrap up our show today. Um, And that is uh, just a moment here. It's just a a moment in the dialogue where uh, Garanagar starts to talk about the founders. And he says, everyone in the Dominion, even the Vorta, serve the founders. I fought against races that believe in mythical beings who guide their destinies and await them after death. They call them gods. The founders are like gods to the Jem'Hadar, but our gods never talk to us, and they don't wait for us after death. They only want us to fight for them and to die for them. And Bashir, when he takes this information back to O'Brien, and he says he's beginning to question everything he's been taught, blind obedience to the founders, killing without remorse, and the devaluation of other sentient life forms, he's developing his own moral structure. They don't spend a ton of time on this idea. I almost want to see a whole episode about that and, and, and parsing this and picking apart that, because to me that is a really fascinating thing to look at, which is this whole culture, this whole race, this whole species, the Jem'Hadar, who not only have been manufactured, they've been genetically altered or created by the founders to do their bidding, but what goes along with it is also this belief system. And it takes shrugging off this belief system along with the the biological uh, uh sort of guardrails that they have on here, but it takes shrugging off that belief system and starting to question that before they can actually become themselves. I'm not going to make mm-hmm. a huge point of that right now, but it was a very interesting uh, uh, bit of dialogue that stood out to me. I think that this is where 
Star Trek really shines when you see a character like this. And you could throw this character away and just say, you know what, he's just a Jem Hadar, you know, he's just a soldier, blah, 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 blah. But it's when he starts learning and adapting and becoming independent of thought and of reason and saying, no, I want something better for myself. I want to evolve. I want to defect in a way. I want to leave the, the chains of my existence and become something better. And I want to take my men with me. Yeah. Okay. And that's where, you know, the, the Hippocratic oath for Garanagar comes into play because by inaction, he would do his men harm. But by taking action, he's trying to save those who are under the influence of something harmful. And I, I thought that was a beautiful moment when, when Bashir realizes that this guy is trying to do something and to save his men from a fate almost worse than death. It's slavery. Okay, seriously, before we get to the end, a question for you. Do the needs of the many truly outweigh the needs of the few or the one? So, John, as we do at the very end of Mission Log, after our recap and after our observations, we are coming to that moment where we are looking at the morals, meanings, and messages of Hippocratic Oath. What did this say to you? Heck yeah, man. Well, uh, first of all, you know, as as a show, as an episode, um, I love that this is a story that we want very badly to put our heroes into boxes of right or wrong when it comes to moral decisions. I like Bashir and I like O'Brien. I respect Bashir and I respect O'Brien. And I also don't think, as I said before, that Bashir or O'Brien are entirely right or entirely wrong here. And that's the compelling part of the story for me. That's why this is a well-done episode. Um, and it's probably why, as we said before, either on mic or off mic, <laughs> that this might have been a story that you could have told in a different context with a, with a different crew, a different cast. Um, it's just a good story to begin with, um, with a compelling sort of moral quandary in the middle of it. Um, you know, if I were to nitpick, I could say that maybe at the end it wraps up neatly with a TV trope, which is, hey, we just won't talk about this and I won't report you. And they do at least end with tension in the room between Bashir and O'Brien, but you know that they'll be okay. Um, otherwise, in the real world, there might be some very different consequences. But again, that's just nitpicking in what I think is an excellent episode. I also think it is directed and acted very well. Um, and that's not just with the people that we already know are going to do a great job, but Scott McDonald as uh, Goranagar is terrific in this. So just working as an episode, it works incredibly well. Uh, what about you before we even get to morals, meanings, messages? I like episodes like this, and especially coming off the heels of something that's very sci-fi, epically awesome, like Way of the Warrior, or something that was so emotionally and uh, connective and powerful the way that The Visitor was, and, and we discussed that uh, in, a, in a previous episode before this. I think that returning to this type of... I guess it's not necessarily a, a bottled episode or um, an isolated story, but it is in a way a really nice character study between putting two friends at odds and seeing the, 
the values of Star Trek as it applies to the idealist versus the pragmatist and using yeah. this very specific example of the title of Hippocratic Oath as the filter for everyone's decision-making process, whether it's Bashir, whether it's O'Brien or whether it's Gorenigar, or like I said, I was making, I was poking fun at Worf, but you know, it does kind of apply there, <laughs> but you have all of these different points of view. And I think that's something that's really important that, that lends itself to informing us and getting us engaged with the episode is that whose point of view do you identify with and why? And by the end of the episode, has your point of view changed? And I think that's very in much in the, in the tenets and in the, the traditions of great Star Trek is that you are not the same person at the beginning of the episode as at the end of the episode. Something in you was changed, very much like something in Garanagar was changed. And in relating to that, you as an audience member become invested, and something there takes hold and may manifest itself later on in your life personally. Who knows? But I think that just because the moral fiber of the story is very strong, it can stand alone and be part of this, the overall continuity of Deep Space Nine because it's a now you know it's a serialized show as opposed to just an episodic mm. show. I think it was very very strong story, and I don't think that some people I think can dismiss it as a buddy cop type story, but I don't think that's the case. No, no, that's giving it too short a shrift. Um, but and there are definitely some morals, meanings, messages, some ideas to chew on here. So I, for me, you know, as I stated earlier, I think that Bashir and O'Brien are both right for different reasons. Though in the end, I'm just going to come down and say, I think Bashir is more right. <laughs> you know, um, it's not to say that O'Brien is completely wrong. We understand his motivations. That's what's important in this episode is that we have some understanding. I just think that Bashir is more right. And, and I, I mean that by saying that there's a message in here about compassion and seeing the enemy, again, as someone who can be understood. And this is a very Star Trek thing, even in the cases throughout Star Trek where we might fail at that. that that's okay. You know, it was Picard who said, when you're talking about negotiating, you try, and then you try again, and then you keep trying. And... It, it's you, you see that in Bashir here, that idealistic idea of I'm going to try and I'm going to try again and I'm going to keep trying and I might fail, but I will keep trying even if there is the possibility that I will die in the process. He's dedicated to the cause. He's dedicated to the, the morality of what he's doing. And as long as we're talking about morality here, um, what I alluded to at the end of the last segment uh, that conversation about the blind belief on display by uh, the Jem Hadar. When you're not blinded by belief, you have freedom. You, you gain freedom and you have agency over your life and over your morals. That's what's really important. That's the realization that Karanagar is developing, is that morals aren't just handed down. They have to be understood. They have to be examined. Otherwise, they have no meaning. It's just an order slapped with a name on it like moral. But in this case, he's actually realizing, well, wait a minute. Consequences have actions. My place in the universe might have a consequence. Um, that was a beautiful moment to see. And it, and it means 
everything about seeing the fearsome Jem'Hadar as people, not just as killing machines. And what else? What, what am I missing here? What else can we throw into our assessment of the morals, meanings, messages? Well, I mean, I agree with that you have two rights here. You have Bashir's version of being in the right, and then you have O'Brien's version of being in the right. But that kind of begs the question, in, in the algebra of this equation, do two rights make a wrong? Because for mm. me, the Bashir and O'Brien storyline really illustrates the reaction to war and conflict in kind of a real-time model. Because... There will be those who, despite war, will strive to act with mercy and compassion like Bashir. There will be those like O'Brien, whose, I guess, his obligation to duty, especially as a prisoner, is to escape and get home alive, back to Keiko and, and back to uh, the station and back to his responsibilities and, and trying to drag Bashir back with him, saving as many um, as, of his fellow captives, in this case Bashir, as he can. So what happens when these two rights, Bashir's rights and O'Brien's right, come in conflict? Does that become a wrong? I mean, does it, does it prevent them from doing the right thing for themselves, for each other? When O'Brien destroys Bashir's work to, to cut uh, Bashir's connection yeah. to the Jem'Hadar and, and, and Bashir's work to save them and try and turn them into something better than themselves, is that a good thing? Is that a righteous act? Is that preservation? And on the flip side was Bashir and kind of like his naivete and his blindness to holding to his Hippocratic oath, preventing him from working with O'Brien and trying to get them out of there to return to Deep Space Nine and again to back to Bashir's responsibilities as chief medical officer. So you have Bashir working to uphold his oath and you have O'Brien working to get everyone out alive. Who's right? There is no right or wrong here. It's really a question of... Ooh, John, I was about to say it. It's what Kirk said to Savick in the turbo lift in Star <laughs> Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. It's a test of character. Oh, oh, that's, that's good. See, I, I thought you were going to say, um, did you change your hair? <laughs> well, it is still in regulation. <laughs> that was and, my and yeah. The big question really is about that. It's like, who's been holding up the damn elevator? I know, <laughs> right? Ugh. So the last thing, and please, listeners... Stay with me. Stay with me. John, stay with me. The last okay. most important comment that I can make about this episode, and it's regarding Worf's B-plot, was Worf's inability to stay in his new lane of command, in his new lane as the Starfleet liaison. And I just have to say this, embrace the spiritual tone of what I'm going to say in the musical spirit of the legendary 1970s Edwin Starr's track, Say it with me. Worf. Huh. Good God. What is he good for? Not station security. Say it with me. <laughs> oh, and with that, well done, sir. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find more at the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. All of our shows currently, Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Indiscretion.
podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.